Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. The following podcast contains explicit language. I'm Stephen Metcalf, and this is the Slate Culture Gap Fest annual, highly improbable, completely pre taped call in show. It's Wednesday, December 27th, 2017. We're filled with holiday cheer no doubt julia turner is slate's editor julia holiday cheer filled with what a great christmas we just had <laughs> <laughs> we're, t- we're actually taping this like the day after Thanksgiving. she said proleptically <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's the day after halloween actually um, can you hear the bells just jingling off in the distance that's the ghost of christmas future <laughs> whoa there, but we are in front a, of a yule log this, this is like julie and i are in front of a virtual yule log right now it's quite toasty this is the Pluto who are you calling a yule log dana stevens there's a <laughs> yuletide bird to your voice oh my gosh the nog is just dripping out of your ears <laughs> <laughs> it's so great the little bells from your santa cap it's just great Elfin cheer. How are you doing, Dana? Jack Frost is visibly nipping at my nose. Like, I can't get him <laughs> off. <laughs> Enough. Jack. Call HR. Jack said a couple <laughs> too many. All right. <laughs> Why do, Should we just plunge right in and start taking questions? Yeah. Hello. Uh, this is Lex Paulson, longtime Gabfest fan, calling from Paris, France. Um, here's my question. If you were appointed culture dictator... For a day, and your job in that day was to destroy one piece of misbegotten culture, a book burning, a film burning, one piece of culture that you think should never have seen the light of day, uh, and remove it uh, from, uh, from all humanity for the rest of time, what would that piece of culture be and why? Thanks very much. Keep up the great work. Au revoir. Ooh, starting with a question Ooh. from Paris. I like it. <laughs> Like that is a really good question, and it's brevity, and it's kind of extreme. Uh, I don't know, just just rhetoricness. It's it's a good conversation starter. Let's stipulate that we do not support the abolishment of any texts. Like no wussing out and answering. Like I don't believe in eliminating culture. I don't like with. Okay, <laughs> right. We have to each pick a piece. Well, you you led with that though. <laughs> No, but I'm stipulating that we can't, that that okay. can't be you the can't, ultimate answer. You can't answer. worm out of it by saying uh, all, all speech all culture deserves to live. I mean, the reason I wanted right. to do this one, this I was scanning the questions, the many good questions that came in from listeners. The reason this one immediately struck my eye as something we should do is that I don't have an immediate answer at all. I mean, your your mind wants to go to somewhere virtuous and say, oh, I'll, I'll take some 
work of art that's caused great harm, and I will eliminate that from history and thereby maybe change history or something like that. But what exactly would that be and what would that mean? And what would that mean to the whole and the memory that it would create? Right? Like, let's take Birth of a Nation, a movie we talked about in 2015 when it turned 100, right? Incredibly important, seminal work of American cinema, but also just this vilely racist document, right? But would I want to eliminate Birth of a Nation from existence and have it taken out of all the histories it's in and like sort of have all of the knowledge that we can gain from revisiting and learning about that document disappear? No, no way. Mm. Yeah. So then you end up with, so my mind wandered to like uh, the misbegottenly popular kind of like, I think in general, we're at a cultural moment where there's more respect and reverence for mass culture of various kinds for things that are just delicious and popular and charming. And you want to gobble them up, even if they're of dubious classical artistic value. And I, as we all know, on this show, I'm a big proponent of that type of work and embracing mass culture for when it is great. But sometimes there's mass culture that I feel like has just collectively hoodwinked people. And I never felt more like this than when I read the first Twilight book to see what the fuss was all about, (laughs) which was just an agglomeration of the worst sentences among the worst sentences that have ever been put to page and yet did have this plot propulsiveness. It was really hard to put down, but there was no – it was like this empty – I don't know, like this funnel you'd fallen down, like you couldn't stop going, but there was no value or pleasure in the That book was really foul. But I have to say that I didn't even find it page. My memory of reading it was that it was not page turnery, that it was the opposite, that it was, I remember it as this heavy cinder block weight object that I just didn't want to pick up and didn't want to keep going with. But I felt like in order to even start talking about the movies, I had to at least sample one Twilight book. I don't know. I zipped through it. It was like Dan Brown, but worse. And it's just like... It's not as funny. There wasn't as much unintentional humor as in Dan Brown. I think that the ability to write pages that just make you want to like turn the page and find out what happens next. Like Dan Brown is a legit genius of plot, even though he's a ludicrous idiot of everything else. And (laughs) Stephanie Meyer isn't even a legit genius of plot, but there was enough just like romantic will she or won't she or something. But also that heroine is just so inert and empty. Like I guess what I'm saying here is that my answer is Twilight. That was the first place my mind went where it's like I'm all for insane mass pop works that don't necessarily put forth the values that uh, have been esteemed in the halls of academe for centuries, but they should be good in some other Mm. way. And that one was not. Let me jump in here and say, first of all, that Dana's opening gambit there was the thinking person's wuss out. You know, it was kind of like kind of going meta with the butterfly effect and saying, well, a part of the human soul would be missing if some of this grew up. Come on. That's not the spirit of the of the of the uh, exercise. So my mind went someplace immediately, which was Ayn Rand. I I think, you know. Oh, yeah, that's a good one. That's a good one. The thing about Rand is that is that it it offends it, it offends in two separate registers so totally. First, the complete and utter mistaking of the Fountainhead and Atlas Shrugged for anything like works of literature is so offensive to like the most rudimentary aesthetic sense. And all of those like modern library reader polls that go alongside for completely false demotic reasons that, that, that accompany you know, what the editors think the greatest novel, 10 or 50 or whatever it is, greatest novels of the 20th century are. Next to them is the reader's choice one. And the ballot box is always stuffed in favor of these hideous pseudo-literary libertarian screeds that represent absolutely the lowest form of literature. I mean, every character is 
is a simpleton, you know, aimed at a simpleton and an allegory. You know, no one has a mixed character whatsoever. They're either a welfare state, you know, blood sucking leech, or they're a you know job creating titan of the fucking capitalist universe. They're asinine as works of literature. They have no aesthetic value whatsoever. And then on top of that, the ideological. I mean, the fact that you can. I mean, my close second choice would be Road to Serfdom by Hayek or, or frankly, the collected works of Friedrich von Hayek. I mean, they, they, they are a magnet for people who want to believe a completely reductive, simplistic idea of human goodness and badness as filtered through the utter banalities of free enterprise. And they focus those energies and give them a veneer of intellectual legitimacy. They plausibly ruined the political universe for the last 30 years, and it will plausibly take the rest of at least my life to get it clean. Okay, so that's a good answer. Also, weirdly, I've never read a single sentence of Anne Rand, and it would actually be kind of fun to do them as a topic at some point, but we'll never read them. I never want to read them. Uh, yeah, by that logic, then maybe Birth of a Nation would be my standard. But I continue to say but that no. the, I want to know the full. I want to know the full ramifications of this question. Like, are no. we keeping it from ever having happened in the first? I place? I think we're keeping it from ever having happened in the first place. And the thing with Birth of a Nation is, with Anne Rand, there's no redeeming value, right? With Birth of a Nation, it's an odious message that had an odious effect. But then, in the annals of film history, there were advances in the yeah. form that supposedly But, but Griffith blah, blah, was already blah. making those advances. Right. Like, I if suppose just... if he could have made a different epic movie, you know, <laughs> if he could have made one that told a different story of the Civil War, right. if he could have told one that didn't have, you know, the people in blackface running around acting sort of monstrous. I mean, yeah, if I could just, like, do story edits on Birth of a Nation. <laughs> that seems like a really wan wuss out from the question, Okay, too. so you said not Birth of a Nation, so you still have to, you still have to put Yeah, up, I don't know. I still have, and then I was thinking, like, Mein Kampf, and then I thought that wasn't really actually that influential in a way. It's not because of Mein Kampf that Hitler had his rise in Germany. It was like a crazy rant that barely anyone read even at the time. So that does, that's more like making you, putting yourself up on a I will kill Hitler pedestal than actually eliminating a thing that needs to be eliminated. The interesting word in the question, though, is misbegotten. Like, somehow, I mean, I think you guys going to Mein Kampf, to Birth of a Nation, to Ayn Rand, that's all totally reasonable way to read the question, but is there just bad, like, boring badness. I mean, we just talked with The Room about movies that are aesthetically bad, but in such a singular way that they're remarkable in and of yeah, themselves. Yeah. But is there just like inert <laughs> Oh, well, the, hum- the, the humorous, the, the road I was going to go down when I was going to sort of say like, no, I can't, the butterfly effect is keeping me from being able to choose any actual historical work or body of work or document or something. We also didn't specify whether it's body of work, right? Could you get rid of all of Ayn Rand? Would you have to just pick one book? <laughs> right. One piece. One piece of misbegotten <laughs> culture. Right. So that's so... Oh, yeah. You got to pick the Fountainhead or the right, other one. Which is Atlas Shrugged. <laughs> or maybe you and Steve can tag team it. <laughs> no, but my joke answer that popped to mind was just going to be, and if if my friend and I think a Gapfest listener, Tanner Colby, is listening right now, he'll laugh at this. It would be the Love Guru, <laughs> the Mike Myers comedy <laughs> that I sat through with Tanner Colby, <laughs> and that afterwards it kind of sealed our friendship. It was one of the first things we ever did together was see this movie, and then we were going to go spoil it, and we did. And uh, and we sort of felt like having lived through this degrading, and humiliating experience, <laughs> we were bonded together forever. And I can't even describe why. It's just it's an absolutely terrible movie that's full of these completely abject jokes. And you just you feel like your life will never be the same when you've walked out. So maybe <laughs> I would just eliminate the love guru. <laughs> I really am enjoying the quadrangle we've drawn <laughs> from Birth of a Nation to Alice Shrugged <laughs> to Twilight to the love guru. All right. Zap. They're all gone. We took three in a bonus. 
Next question. Now we have to walk out of the studio and see what strange hellscape we live in. <laughs> it's actually just going to be charred. <laughs> or maybe it'll look like Teletubbies land. <laughs> Hello, Dana, Stephen, and Julia. My question is about aging, how to do it well or badly. So I'd love for you to tell us about people in your life or your career whom you would like to emulate as you age. So much so that perhaps you've thought about somebody like, note to self, updating opinions about cultural trends and politics as you age is important. Or on the flip side, like, damn, let's avoid becoming the crotchety old man who rants about politics and millennials. So things you avoid, things you hope to do, I'd love to hear about it. This is your friend. Tootie in Washington, Vermont. Tootie. I believe Tootie came on our blueberry hike like, uh, a couple summers ago. Unless we have two listeners named Tootie from Vermont. I, I don't see it happening. Uh, good question. I, uh, can I tell a little story? Por favor. So I, um, I had a vision the other day of what aging ought to be. A friend of mine who's a retired architect who doesn't listen to this show, so he won't hear this story. And if he, if he did, he'd spit. He doesn't like to be, you know complimented in any way paid attention to in any way but anyway lives down the road from me he's about 20 25 years older than i am 20 years older than i am um and uh he spent um the about two weeks he spent several weeks designing a timber frame to build on an extension of his house and then he spent spent about a month or five weeks building it by hand himself in his backyard before the weather got really cold with a friend of his who, uh, a younger woman in her 30s, an English woman, wonderful person. And they 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 just spent hours and hours and hours out there building this thing by freaking hand, like peg, you know, what's it called? Timber peg construction, you know, no metal pieces, uh, and then getting the thing up. Uh, it was just, it was so satisfying. And I would go and have a drink with them at the end of the day, um, and I'll just never forget, I looked over, he lives in this ancient house. I think it's the second oldest house in the county. It's 200 and some odd years old. And um, stone house with this massive fireplace. And I'll never forget, he had worked really hard. He was physically quite hard. And he was ruddy. And it was cold. It was starting to get really cold. I mean, and they knocked off about five or six at night. So sunset. So it was, you know, whatever. I mean, it was, you know, it was like your blood was really going and keeping you warm. And he had his gin and tonic and uh, he got a fire going in his gigantic hearth and his chair was halfway into the hearth and he had his gin and tonic, his vape pen, and he just worked his fucking ass off. And I remember looking over and thinking, that is as close to a picture of fully realized human happiness as I think I've ever fucking seen. And so I, I think the key Wait, is really... Wait, he worked, really he, was, the, he was drawing? He was like going, doing architectural work at that moment or what? What was he doing? No, he, no, no, no. At that moment, he was just sitting in the fire after a day of physical work. After a day of working, he right. Had, okay. He's resting. Yeah, of, of like literally physically building right, the, right. Yeah, the thing. He'd come back into his house. He was done. He'd done his work. And, I, you know, clearly the key to this whole picture is the vape pen and the gin and tonic, but <laughs> at least there's a... As but a the backdrop is you have to earn the vape pen and the gin and tonic. Yes, and if you're having them in front of a exactly. Venetian blind or something, it's not the same. You got to be in front of the roaring hearth. 
I think, but it also, I, I, I tell you one, I just want to add one thing quickly because the story is probably self-explanatory. Even before that moment, he has been a, a model to me for how to age because the one commanding fact of that man's life as he gets into his 70s, into, the, into his mid-70s, is he does not want or need anything from anybody, right? There's nothing that he envies, nothing that he regrets. He has many, many intimate, fully uh, realized, um, satisfying relationships. It seems to me that's that's something to like try to shoot for, and it's hard to remember because so little of what blitzes us when we're younger orients us to that kind of satisfaction. That sounds amazing. Can we just all pull up three chairs by the hearth? <laughs> <laughs> yes. Oh, my God. He would love to host all of us in this kitchen, believe me. That sounds good. My model of aging is my grandmother, my mom's mom, who I was really close to, who lived till she was 93, and I got to know, you know, in my teens and in my early 20s, who was just a learner the whole time, forever. Uh, kept reading, went to, like, elder hostels courses on college campuses when she was a, you know, bustling retiree in her 60s and 70s, and then became someone who read voraciously and was always doing the crossword puzzle and just was with it, you know? She wanted to know what the world had to offer. She was following it. She was reading it. She was trying to understand it. She she got uh, interested in email. There was like a computer center at her retirement community in the late 90s or whenever it was, maybe the early aughts. Um, and she like figured out email at 86 and like did email for a year or two and then was like, nah, I'm actually not into email. But she tried it, you know, like having the the instinct to not write off the new um, and then just connect all of the things she learned over the course of her life to all of the new incoming, like that is totally inspiring to oh, me. Oh, yeah, that's great. I, I mean, I had a grandmother, my mother's mother, who was not unlike that too, also got into, not into technology, but yeah, learned to use basic technology in her 80s, always read, always cared about art and music and dance and was just, you know, like a cultural, a sort of maybe one of the most sort of sophisticated cultural people that I knew as a small child, you know, mm -hmm. someone who um, just loved the world and beauty in that way. And so, yeah, that's a great something to aspire to. Um, what else? Oh, traveling a lot. That's something actually that I really like about how my own parents are doing their retirement is that they are really interested in seeing the world and they have their house on all these house swap services where you can swap for free with people all over the world and uh, and are never losing their interest in travel as long as they're healthy. And I love that. I, I, part, part of the story I told about my grandmother is just this openness to trying things and to, and to being able to find the continuity between the things she loved and learned as like a college girl in the 20s appreciating the poetry of the 1800s and being a woman in the early aughts, like understanding the future, like the span of that 90-year life, looking 100 years forward and 100 years back. Like that's beautiful. But one thing that struck me here on the precipice of 40, I just turned 39, there are generational instincts. There are generational instincts, I think, in political response sometimes. I mean, the, the you know, when, when the conversation happened about punching Nazis and we were like, there's this big, huge, avid fight about whether you should punch Nazis. And the three of us were like, obviously, you don't punch Nazis. There's, it's just impossible to consider a world where you would punch a Nazi. Like, how could that be the answer? Like, we could not, in the span of generations that we represent, find someone who 
thought that Nazi punching was like obviously the correct choice. And then we brought on a great smart colleague of a slightly different generation who made that argument. But like, I don't know. I always thought I'd be one of the cool old people whose views evolve with the times. And I, I still aspire to that. But I don't know. Sometimes your views are a product of your time. Like, and it's hard to separate it out. Yeah. Yeah. And maybe not entirely advisable to, right? I mean, you're not going to, you're not an OS. You don't have to update yourself just because updates are happening. Like there may be something of your worldview that you're bringing forward that's valuable, you know, or at least there may be parts of you that are invaluable that are inseparable from that now outdated part of your worldview. We'll have robots to punch Nazis then anyway. (laughs) (laughs) Before we get our next question, I do quickly want to tell our listeners about another show, Slate's I Have to Ask. Each week on the show, Slate's resident interrogator Isaac Chotner talks one-on-one with newsmakers, celebrities, and cultural icons to help us better understand them and our world. If you're looking for a place to start, I recommend Isaac's episode with Ta-Nehisi Coates, where the author tries to make sense of Trump's America and what role his writing is supposed to play in it. Find the show at slate.com slash have to ask or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Uh, We also have a special announcement. We are doing a live show at the Sundance Film Festival with Represent Aisha Harris's wonderful show. We'll have special guests and lots of gab. That'll be on Tuesday, the 23rd of January at 4.30 p.m. in the Filmmaker Lodge in downtown Park City, Utah. Check it out at Slate.com slash live. I am so excited. I have never been to Sundance. Dana, you have been to Sundance, I I've think. been to Sundance in the unusual and rarefied capacity of judge. Ooh. The one and only time I've been, I was a VIP. I was the judge of a, the dramatic competition, and it was wonderful. Probably very different different than the experience we'll have because we weren't we're, sort of in the mix. We're just going to be sad, hoi polloi. I mean, we were being like chauffeured in cars from place to place, and I got a little bit less of a sense of like the line-waiting scrimmage that is Sundance, but it's a wonderful festival in a beautiful place. I can't wait. In Slate Plus today, we'll be doing a bonus question or two we didn't have time for in the regular show. And I will say that one of the questions we got from a listener was basically, how do you guys feel about weed? And we answered. So and that's that's an after hours kind of question. So we put it in plus. We were afraid our parents would hear. So you have to pony up for Slate Plus to hear the answer to that question. Uh, to hear segments like that and get ad-free podcasts, sign up for Slate Plus. Slate Plus is our membership program and is a great way to support Slate and the journalism that we do. For just $35 for your first year, you can help cover the cost of producing the Culture Gab Fest and your other favorite Slate shows. And of course, in return, you'll get extended ad-free versions of this show and other great Slate shows and a ton of other great benefits. My current favorite is that you get a bonus episode for every episode of Slow Burn, the amazing Leon Nafok podcast about Watergate. Those are good. Don't sleep on those. Good time to sign up if you haven't yet. So if you'd like to support the Culture Gab Fest, please go to slate.com slash culture plus and join Slate Plus today. Okay, back to it. Hi, this is Rolf from San Marcos, Texas. I have recently in the last few years really gotten into list making in terms of best of for the year for both albums and movies and emulating a lot of my favorite critics. And I'm really curious um, when y'all might have started doing this in your own lives, even perhaps in your pre-critic days. I'm especially curious how this might break down by gender on the panel as it seems to be a pretty male activity a lot of the time among music and movie fans. Anyway, Thanks. Bye. Well, this is so interesting. I feel like we grill Dana about lists all the time because she has to make one annually. Like, And her job is to survey the terrain of movies like a watchwoman in a tower and point out all of the interesting things on the horizon. Like that's your vocation. Um, 
I keep a bunch of cultural lists, but never I'm never like, oh, I've checked out everything and I'm I'm anointing the best things. It's more like things that you want to remember for yourself because they made an impression on you or you want to recommend them or it's I somehow we're talking about all of my boring lists and systems all the time now, but I keep a Google Doc of every movie I watch and every book I read in any given year. And I have a tab for each year. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I only update it like every three months. Like I'm not like – I don't like race there as soon as I see something. And actually the movies is much shaggier. It's more the books. Um, and I keep a list of books too actually. I mean it's basically – it's literally just a piece of paper taped to my desk that I forget to f- fill in for months at a time. And then, But then I try to go back and write down all the books that I've read. I don't know why I do it. I have no clue. Steve, do you do any culture lists? Well, in a way, I sort of do. So I kind of half answered this in a previous show, which is that I, uh, on Sunday afternoons, pop on KCRW. And then what I do is when a song comes up that I don't know that I really like, I look up who the artist is. I take that record that it's on and I add it to this absolutely monster Spotify list that I have. So that my listing is all Spotify and Sonos based. And it's just these two, 3,000, 4,000 were. 4,000 song playlists that um, I can just pop on and listen to for hours and hours and, you know, scarcely anything I've heard before gets repeated. So it's it's kind of cool. Oh, that's really ambitious. Maybe you should hook up listeners to the show and us to your master Spotify list sometime. Would you be willing to do that or is it too private? No, it's not private at all. I could totally make that one public. Yeah. That'd I'd be love great. That I feel like I've talked at one point about Kid Drive, the playlist that I that is a hybrid of my favorites from Summer Strut plus a bunch of weird show tunes that our kids like, <laughs> most of which are characterized by like fast patter. You know how like most musicals have one song where like the razzmatazz guy does a right? fast patter number. It doesn't matter what show. There's always one of those. Like all of those songs are on it. And there's like three Spotify listeners out there who are also following the list. who must be <laughs> culture campus listeners. And I'm like, it's the most erratic playlist. It's so strange. Um, but I, I, Steve's like to consider musically ever mega list. Sounds I don't know like how to make a public one. Spotify playlist. Talk I, about being an old lady who needs to learn something. I could make a winter wallow playlist for my fellow fellow wallowers. You should, but I think there. they're actually public by default. Oh, really? So you just have to know that the person is there. Mm-hmm. I think it's just that nobody follows my page because it's too wan and <laughs> moaning. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, yeah, I don't know where the impulse came to track the stuff. So there's two different kinds. There's or three. The stuff you want to consume or learn about the stuff you have consumed or learned about, like which is less true of music because that's sort of a repeat situation. But I think with movies or uh, books or TV shows, it's sort of like a bedpost notch quality of like, all right, mm-hmm. that one. Um, and then there's like best in class per year, which I don't know anybody who recreationally makes those a top 10 list for the year. But I guess maybe some... Super intense movie and music I know lots of people do. I mean, if you're on film Twitter, you know, there's plenty of people who sort of have a critical practice separated from a professional life. I mean, for me, I've, I had a critical practice separated from professional life when I had a movie blog, but I never did 10 best lists on it because that to me feels like, I mean, as you know, Julia, it's something of a professional obligation. Although this year I was kind of looking deep within as I was putting together my list, a process that I kind of enjoyed this year and was asking myself, why do I resist this so much? When, especially when I love reading other people's lists and, 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 and sort of talking about them and seeing what's on them and what's not, what's not and comparing them. 
that is great sport, and I see why why people enjoy it. But I think a part of me hates making it just because it's it's really hard work. You know, I mean, it's revisiting hours and hours and hours of experience that is at this point obscurely far in the past, and that you've already written and talked about in most cases, and trying to find to revisit it afresh and find something new to say about it and put that in this blurb like form and present it. It's just it's 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 a high bar of difficulty to write a good top ten list. Also, because you're competing with hundreds of critics. Well, I wish I wish we fostered hundreds of critics in the U.S. Dozens, I don't know, however many there are, doing the same thing at the same time. Your top ten list made me cry this year, Dana. Oh, thank you. It very beautiful. I mean, I guess thank you. I'm sorry that it made you no, suffer. No, in a really lovely but way. But you figured in it yeah. largely in my in my Wonder no, Woman blurb. No, in your, in your Wonder Woman blurb, I felt the same way about watching Wonder Woman with you. It was great. No, I tried to make my list matter this year because it was just like this year, you know, if you're not going to find meaning in your work, like you really are just screwed and you might as well just stare emptily into the void. So <laughs> <laughs> so putting it together was like a meaningful process to me this year. And there were lots of great movies to choose from. But no, in general, I would say that that along with the Oscars is one of my least favorite writing assignments of the year. Hi, guys. This is Jordan calling from Boston. I'm curious who does the cooking in your respective houses. Are you guys big proponents of cooking dinner every night or do you tend to do takeout or eat out? And if you do enjoy cooking and cook most nights of the week, I'm also curious how you meal plan. Do you have certain cooking websites or cookbooks or tried and true recipes that you always go to? All right. Thanks so much. This one's for Steve. Do you think he's the most cook of all of us? Don't you? Yeah, I guess so. I guess I don't know what your relationship to cooking is. There are no takeout options to speak of in um, certainly no delivery options other than maybe pizza where I live. So cooking became central to our lives. when We moved up to the Hudson Valley now about seven eight years ago um prior to moving up here when we did cook it was typically me and now since moving up here is typically i have to admit it has been my wife um i'm on dish duty and driving duty and so i hope there's like there's nothing like full gender parity happening in this household but it's not a complete fucking patriarchal travesty i hope but um so um, and then it's, you know, meal planning is its own agita, I guess. But, uh, you know, there are some, you know, there, there's there's been it's funny. I think people thought, correct me if I'm wrong, people thought that the Internet might be the death of cookbooks because recipes are not copyrightable. But it's turned out to be quite the opposite. Cookbooks had to become much more creative in their presentation in order to be, you know, the, the object that you had to own had to be more than just the, you know, information contained therein and so smitten kitchen and i mean i name them i mean the now of course i'm not going to be able to think of them but the the five or six like you know all the auto lenghi's um who's who's that english farmhouse uh cookbook guru um anyway i don't uh, know man you're the cook (laughs) (laughs) oh all right i'm gonna punt this to you julia um, uh, I'm a decent cook who doesn't cook. Like, I really like cooking, and I can make things to eat that are good to eat, but just, like, cooking dinner does not fit into my current life. And I live in a city that enables that. And you can just come home, put your kids to bed, order up some tacos, and call it a night. Uh, and I do that almost all the time. Um, What about on weekends? 
Yeah, cooking is like in a hobby space for yeah, me right same now. Same for me, same for me. But occasionally will you say, I feel like making a pot roast this weekend. Oh, yeah. It. I love cooking and it's like really comforting and I love what it does to the house and how it makes the home so cozy. The boys and I made baguettes a couple weekends ago because one of them is obsessed with baguettes and like just his, if we'll go to a bakery full of pastries and we'll let him pick anything, he just picks a baguette <laughs> and like eats it from the end like a gigantic cigar. He's like one of those old photographs of cute little French boys in shorts bicycling along with a baguette in their basket. He's truly a boy after my own heart, loves nothing more than starch. Um, and... And so I was like, we can make baguettes at home. And they were like, what? So then we spent like one cozy cold day with like the yeast and the rising and the baguette and the rolling, you know, all that's fun. Um, I Someday in life, maybe I'll cook more. My parents cooked dinner every night. We really did have that thing of like family dinner every night. It was kind of late because my parents both work. It was my mom mostly who cooked I think it was kind of her zen. She'd like come home and put on NPR and have a glass of wine and like say hi to us, but then go off and have a task mm-hmm. and like a little decompression time. And then we'd all sit down. And I sort of feel like I haven't grown up yet because I don't do that. I mean, that is so civilized. And whenever I hear about families who do that now, I A, resent them and B, <laughs> suspect they're lying. <laughs> it really happened. I really lived through it and it was great and i like don't know how they did it I don't there's a understand. few nights a week where you know we'll have dinner together and insist on having dinner together and it's very nice but there's many many nights where it's just physically impossible i have a movie to go to or my daughter has a rehearsal that goes late or you know we just aren't all going to eat at the same time and it would so distort our lives to force that to happen that we would lose all the family comradeship and just bickering about being tired As for cooking, like Julia, I feel like my ability to cook, in my case, like my ability to drive, have atrophied since moving to New York. And I also have a main man who's a really excellent cook and a very efficient cook and someone who on a weeknight can actually pull together a tasty dinner with a minimum of drama, whereas I feel like every recipe book lies wildly about how long recipes take. You know, that doesn't even include things like getting to the store and waiting in the line. And when you really break it down, going from... A to Z and making a dinner, including all the shopping and all the cleanup, takes four hours or something. You know, So I'm only going to do it on a day when I have a cushion of time around it to enjoy it. Well, it's also the thing where if you do it every day and it's part of your practice, like it takes less time. If you are an occasional cook, it, four hours is totally right. It's like you got to decide. You got to pick the recipe. You got to go. You don't have the stuff. You get the da 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 but, but the people I truly worship – and Steve, somehow in mind I had that you were one of these people. I think you may be downplaying your cooking – uh, or maybe your wife is just this way too. But I once had a roommate who was one of the most extraordinary cooks I've ever known. And she was one of those forager cooks who could like come home from school. She was a teacher, open the fridge with no planning and like see in the raw materials the meal and conjure it in like 18 minutes. I have minutes. a friend like that. It's ridiculous. It's the most, like it is the skill I don't possess that I most wish I possessed. Like I don't cook in that kind of just sure-footed, really masterful way where it's just instinctive and deliciousness emerges through this wow. kind of flow state. Like I, I'm very yeah. like, I have a few recipes I trust. If I'm making a new recipe, that's like a different kind of cooking. A different like I'm. I'm never like, oh, let me try something tonight when people are coming over. It's like I want to make something I'm sure of, so I have like a few old standbys, and then, yeah, I, the, someday maybe I'll be that kind of cook. Yeah, maybe that has to do with the time and the temperament that you can bring to it at that time. 
the most satisfying thing in the whole world is to do a version of that. But it's, for me, so rudimentary. I mean, I have no gifts per se. My favorite thing is to find a bunch of vegetables that they're not off per se, but they're perfect for roasting. You know, peel them up, slice them up, throw a bunch of garlic, maybe even in the paper, in the garlic paper, uh, and just roast it, boil some pasta, and then add, you know, if you have any basil, even if it's dried basil, a little olive oil, and just toss it all together. I mean, that to me is a fucking heavenly meal. And then, you know, a little Parmesan, if you have a little hunks of of fresh mozzarella to go gooey inside of it. And that's a brilliant meal, but any, any low-life thug could could make that work. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> even you too um and that but just in terms of the per- the personal satisfaction in doing it is immense uh and it tastes quite good but the 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 level of difficulty is really quite low hi um this is Sharon calling from Austin Texas this question is for Steven um my husband and I actually just adopted a a baby girl a couple months ago and uh, I know it's been mentioned over the years uh, that you yourself are adopted, and I was wondering if you had um, any good advice to impart upon us as um, adoptive parents. Uh, would be much appreciated. Thanks so much. Bye. Well, I mean, I, I, so I guess there are two points of view from which I can answer this question. One is, is you know, I was an adopted child, and now I'm the parent of you know kids, my my kids who are not adopted. Um, and I think that there's an analogy, enough of an analogy there, just to say you know, your your kids need to hear and feel from you that you love them unconditionally. And that, I think, as a parent, I believe that that is just so universally true, regardless of how your family formed. And I think as we enter into a period and have been in a period of, you know, somewhat non-traditional families, at least based on, you know, what is now an archaic model, non-traditional families, that, that just turns out to be over and over and over again, the one universally true thing is this this oh fuck this is such a fucking stupid answer okay no it's not oh, it's so i got I'm, oh. I'm totally moved, I'm moved yeah um and i just i and i guess what i'm saying is that is that having been on both ends of this transaction i think biological um like some underlying biological connection is the least relevant fact of being a parent you know, to a child. Um, and, um, you know, the the human record suggests that people who have quote unquote their own children bollocks it um, at a high enough rate of frequency that there's nothing essential about that fact that makes a child healthier, happier, more yours, less yours. Um, and um, I can just tell from the sound of your voice, you're not going to fuck it up, right? Like oh. the way you, the way you ask the question. But um, there's a there's a slightly more specific question of how you treat it when you discuss it and describe it to them. What age they're at? I hate to send you the to the internet. I mean, my sense is that is that the consensus now is. You know, just it's just a fact of their. I mean, think about when you start telling them what their name is and what the sky is and what the. I mean, you're sort of there's a whole massive range of information that you're imparting to a kid. Mm-hmm. You know about all of life, and included in that can be maybe some sense of um, 
you know, there are all these different ways to make a family and we chose this way. I mean, what people always say is that is that, you know, we chose you. Like that's even more some are not more. I mean, you, these things are, aren't relative to one another. They're on relative strength. But but a way to make a family is through volition and choice as opposed to, you know, a sex act and a, you know, zygote in a spot. I mean, you know, you know what I'm saying? And it's like there just, can just be a sense of affinity and choice and, and what a incredible gift it was, you know. And I mean, all of that, like that's just conveying that is is, I think, I don't just, I, I just don't, I, you know, I, I think that that, that's, a, that's the only advice I could possibly give. I have a question, Steve. This is, I'm sure, not of your parents' generation, but did they celebrate or acknowledge the day that they got you, the day that they took you home as opposed to your birthday? No, we just always celebrated my birthday. Mm, I wonder, like, that's something that I think a lot of adoptive parents do now is have a day that they acknowledge in some way that's their gotcha day, you know, that they took the kid home and that that means something to the kid because they sort of have an extra, something extra from being adopted instead of always feeling like, oh, it's the same thing, but it's missing something. That's really interesting. I mean, I, I can't speak to this particular question, but I will say as a parent, one thing that I've observed over my years doing it, and you guys have done it longer and you can tell me what you think. I'm struck by the degree to which everything is simplified. If you just say to yourself over and over again, my job is to make them feel safe and loved. Like yeah. they are who they are and all you can do is make them feel safe and loved and, and be safe also too. Um, but there's so much temptation to look at whatever's unusual about your situation and worry that that unusual aspect is going to be responsible for some crucial parental fuck uppery. Like, we've got twins. Are we handling the twins in the right way? Like, is that going to shape? The, is that going to be where the die is cast? Right now we're in this crazy long distance situation. And is that, does that have dire consequences? You know, like you, I think if you spend a lot of time anxious about whether you're doing it right, Mm-hmm. The 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 then the anxiety is what's twanging around. And yes, you're just I like agree. Safe and loved, safe and loved, safe and loved. There are so many ways to be a family. Like we have a crazy logistical life right now, but we're very clear with the kids. Like there's no uncertainty in what we're doing. Like exactly, family life right now involves a lot of travel and like uh, trips to Los Angeles and like Facetime with Daddy and the rest. And it's not what our life will be forever, but it's what it is right now. But there's a ton of constancy underneath it. And right. I and and I know that those things are different than the adoption question and there's plenty that I don't or can't understand, but I as a general practice for parenting, like everybody has some unusual something. Just make them feel safe and loved. Yeah, exactly. And also there's a I mean, I would just refine that slightly by saying like you're going to feel anxiety, ambivalence, second guessing, uh, you're going to feel that, but that's every parent feels that. You're not alone in feeling that. It, it's really a question of how anxious you are about the anxiety, in a way. And you know, you're you're the constant; they're the variable. You know, and and you, you can fake it until you make it. Like you can keep a lot of those doubts to yourself. Um, you know, or I mean, not to yourself, but but they don't have to be. You, they don't have to be represented to your kid for you to feel them you know right or the fact that you're feeling them doesn't mean they're actually pertinent to how your kid's childhood would be or how they'll turn out because everybody feels them exactly hi steven and julia and dana this is chrissa in brooklyn uh so my question is 
for all three of you or any of you to whom this question speaks, what is your um, bakery in Berkeley is what I call it, the escape career that you would change your current career path in order to do, which is presumably something that you could do relatively easily. The idea is not to go back to school and become an evolutionary biologist, which was my husband's answer to the question, which I think is totally misinterpreting the spirit. Uh, but, you know, running off and starting a kayaking concern on the coast in La Pouche, Washington, or uh, becoming a wedding efficient in Nevada, um, I refer to it as one bakery in Berkeley, and I'm always curious to hear what people would choose. So that's my question. This is a great question. It's making me think of an actual great bakery in Berkeley. <laughs> <laughs> Can I endorse it as long as I'm thinking of it? Why not? It's called Crix's Cakes. It didn't actually exist when I lived in Berkeley, but every time I go back now, I go there. Oh, my God. It's incredible. It's near the Ashby Bart Station between Berkeley and Oakland, C-R-I-X-A. Crix's cakes and they're sort of like these Polish Eastern European delights. It is just the best smelling, most heavenly place on earth. But it would not be my dream to operate Crix's cakes. And I don't know what it would be. One of you guys has to answer first because I don't have an immediate response. Oh, yeah. I don't know. I so first of all, this is such a smart question because everybody has this to some degree, right? Part of growing older and aging and you know, settling into the life you've ended up in is like occasionally catching glimpses of the alternate life, whether it's in the life where you went to law school or the life where you became an architect or whatever else, life where you moved to San Francisco. Um, and there's something, uh, there's a little bit of vertigo and allure in any of those options. Um, before I ended up where I am, I mean, I have a dream job. I love my job. Um, although I don't, I don't think having a job you love precludes you from also having a bakery in Berkeley fantasy in any way. I definitely thought when I was in my twenties in New York that in my thirties I would live in the Berkshires. I basically thought that my dream job was to be Steve, except an editor. <laughs> no, I'm serious. I had this idea that I would live in the Berkshires in uh, an old wooden house, and I would have a barn with some kind of hayloft office setup with a nice view out over some dun colored fields <laughs> and I would work up there and then I would like go down into the city like two days a week to like meet with the people for whom I was doing contract editing. That was like my setup that I aspired to. I would go, you know, on long walks in the morning or something. I don't know that that's on the horizon anymore. That's and a also nice that fantasy life though. That kind of feeds back to the old age. Like maybe that can be your plan for the last, you know, quarter yeah, of your life. Maybe. And that's also, that's not an alternate career. I mean, it would be a different kind of editorial right. work, presumably, that you would do than running an organization. But it's still fundamentally the same work. It's not the kind of like, what if I just yeah, had a right. little shop? Yeah, it's more like, how can I deploy my same skills in a more relaxing <laughs> environment? <laughs> right. Like, you know, like, wouldn't it be fun to run a bookstore in X? Like, I feel like bookstore is... The... I don't actually want to work retail anywhere. I mean, God bless people who do. But the idea of running a store, restaurant, bakery, any kind of thing where you are interfacing with the public and trying to peddle a product just sounds absolutely exhausting and just so like the intro introverts nightmare do you mm. have an opening a business can either of you see hanging out a shingle and oh purveying something 100 percent. yes yeah? definitely what would you purvey bookstore definitely bookstore yeah, bookstore bookstore is a good one you guys could purvey a good bookstore this, 
That'd be fun, man, Steve. Maybe I should just move up to Ghent and we'll open a bookstore. I guess they I have a good it. one already. Eh, they could use, uh, there's a really good one in Lenox. You may even know it because it's Western Mass. It's uh, I think it's just Lenox Books. It's just, it's, it is like the bakery in Berkeley of books in Western Let's Mass. Let's destroy them. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I want to live in towns where you guys have your your fantasy bookstores. I just don't want to run a fantasy bookstore. Oh, the fantasy, the bookstore is great because you don't have to make the thing. The bakery part seems difficult because mm-hmm. what about all that, the, all the baking? Right. Yeah. The bookstore, you just click it up. Ah, oh, send me a few of those and a few of those. <laughs> yeah, but still you're managing, well, you're managing already in the job that you're in. Like that is actually one of your, your talents. But to me, the whole idea of sort of, oh God, I have to hire and fire people and find qualified people and make them all get along. And that just sounds so outside my <laughs> skill set. I just see myself hiding under the bookstore, you know, cashier de- cashier's desks. So I don't have to deal with them all. Oh man, I'll give you my bakery in Brooklyn. This one's really out there, but um, I know uh, I know guys in the um, wine business in Tasmania, and uh, I mean, it just keeps calling to me, man. That place is in my freaking blood, and you know, one of them wants to start this kind of, you know farm to table nose to dale with vineyards overlooking this incredible body of water he's an amazing chef he made the 50 best restaurants in the world list uh, in his previous restaurant it's actually a farmer who's american farmer who's now in his 60s and this young chef who's in his 30s i love both of them and they want to do it together i want to go move to tasmania and do it with them oh god i can so see that as steve's third act can't you the tasmanian (laughs) wine empire (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> Can we come visit you in your Tasmanian wine empire? Oh my God! Yes, you can. there's going to be like a, a latter day James Mishner who arises to chronicle the life of of Steve Metcalf and his dynasty of Tasmanian <laughs> wines. I feel like I have a secret alternate bakery in Berkeley thing, which is to become somehow very engrossed in like local New York affairs, mm-hmm. like. Mm. Oh, yeah, this has been one of mine since Trump was elected, just abruptly since then, is that it's a fantasy I regularly have, like, I'm quitting everything and I'm becoming an activist. Also, completely doesn't suit my personality type. I but this idea that I would sort of, like, become someone who, you know, Yeah, mine isn't change. to become an activist, but, like, I, I occasionally go to the community board meetings in my neighborhood, and there's these two guys who run this one committee whose meetings I go to, and I have so much respect for them. Like, they run these meetings, they control some of the licensing in our area, they... But that's being an activist at a grassroots level. No, but they're not. They're adjudicators. They're not activists. They're, I mean, they're they're part of the government. They're trying to make smart decisions about land use and okay, building maybe use act- and code use. It's a stretch use. of activism, but I mean, there there are people who are trying to implement positive change according to their beliefs in their community. They're just so smart. They're so sober. Their names are Bob Ely and Carter Booth. Why not say so? I just love the city. I love living in New York. And the, and New York is like a thousand small towns all superimposed right on top of each other. And and it's also a huge cosmopolitan metropolis. But the issues that surround the very local questions of how we do what where and who gets to live where and how does the transit work. I mean, the recent investigation in the New York Times about how the subway went so sideways was maddening also made you think about questions of local journalism and like maybe if the Times had just been covering it incrementally all along instead of spending nine months covering everything that happened in the previous 15 years in one blow in in 2017, like 
you know, but I'm sure they did a bunch of incremental stories all along the way and none of us read them. It's when you like plant a flag on it and are like, this is Pulitzer bait. Right. We did this. Well, and also when the system starts to fall apart from sheer right. corruption. It, it creates the occasion and, and the curiosity. But that's sort of my other bakery in Berkeley is to just like run for the community board. Ooh, cool. I can see that. I like that. I think mine, I was trying to think about whether mine had to do with teaching or academia, because, of course, that's like the path not taken, right? The thing that I was totally prepared for, like, here is your final mortarboard proof that you can go have this career and then not doing the career. But when I really think about it, no, I dodged a bullet. I'm not suited for that career at all. And I would much be, rather be doing what I'm doing. Well, don't you, aren't you kind of living in your bakery in Berkeley, Dana? Yeah. I mean, so you were saying <laughs> at the top of the show, like, you maybe feel that way, too. I mean, I don't want to say there's nothing I would change about my current life circumstances, but there's not really a yeah, writing sorry, I did not mean as your employer to suggest <laughs> that you have a perfect dream job. <laughs> I just mean like you had this path and then the secret the secret alternate idea of like maybe I should be a movie critic. Yeah. And you do have this incredibly glamorous job of like you're only dozens of people get to be movie critics. No, like, I know. My job is so ridiculously cocktail party sounding glamorously good. I know, I've that... seen you get cornered at cocktail parties <laughs> where people are like, tell me what it's like, Dana. <laughs> Yeah, so it ends up making you feel really ungracious for saying anything complainy, and I don't have any complainy things to say now, but the things that I miss, I think, in this job are things that academia did offer, and it's not the teaching. That's how I know that that wasn't the right job for me, is that I never particularly felt comfortable teaching, and I don't miss teaching at all, and I value teaching hugely and don't want to be a person who does it because it's part of their job, but they're mediocre and not enthusiastic about it. Um, but I miss the scholarship part. You know, I love the research and scholarship and the idea, which seems more important than ever in kind of the era we're in now, the new dark ages practically, of being the keeper of a flame of something, of sort of conserving ephemera. You know, it's like, um, you know, medieval scribes, like those people just, you, they blow you away when you think about what their lives were, you know, just like keeping these documents alive for another 70 years until the next person mm. could come along who could transcribe them. And so something like that is a fantasy career I can have sometimes where it's whether it's being an archivist or librarian of some kind mm. or an archaeologist or someone like dusting off old oh, artifacts yeah. at, a, at a dig site or something like that. Oh, no, Steve, I'm ditching our bookstore. I want to go let, work in the archives with Dana <laughs> now. I love Being it. Being some person who's on the BBC, just just talking about, you know, some tiny little bone that you found at some meaningful dig site. Oh, man. I'm so glad we all ended up in the life where part of our job is getting to talk to each other every week. But I'm <laughs> also true. very excited for all of our alternate lives. Thanks, Dana. Thanks, Steve. Thanks, Julia. Thank you. You'll find links to some of the things we talked about today at our show page at slate.com slash culturefest. You can email us at culturefest at slate.com or drop us a note at our Facebook page. That's facebook.com slash culturefest. Our Twitter feed is at slatecultfest. Our producer is Benjamin Frisch. Our intern is Daniel Schrader. Andy Bowers is the chief content officer of the Panoply Networks. The Culture Gap Fist is part of that network. You can find an entire roster of Panoply shows at panoply.fm. For Dana Stevens and Julia Turner, I'm Stephen Metcalf. Thank you so much for joining us. Happy holidays, and we'll see you soon. He said so.